Hey guys, it's Matilda Pearl. We've lost too many lives on our roads this year through risks that weren't worth taking. So I've teamed up with the TAC and other artists to use live music as a way of highlighting that life without your mates is as quiet as music without a band. So take extra care out there and let's keep the band together. We were obviously aware of the fact that it was an auspicious music town, that, you know, we had to be respectful of the fact that this had this great history that we were kind of, you know, jumping into. Melbourne feels so vibrant and amazing and, like, there's a strong history and culture to live music here. It feels like this has always been the music capital of Australia in my eyes. I can't recall when we first started to break through in Melbourne, but it was something we'd always aimed for. I mean, we wrote a song deliberately mentioning, you know, Melbourne landmark. So that was a way of making some sort of wish fulfillment. By and large, everything in Melbourne has been really very, very good. The place has been really good to us. Victorians love their live music. And the state has something for every kind of music fan. From small basement gigs, to sold out shows in community halls, from sticky carpet pubs, to massive outdoor festivals. The state has it all. And in true Melbourne fashion, all of this and more can be experienced just a short walk from the city's CBD. Overseas visitors are amazed when they come to Melbourne and discover that the world's greatest sporting precinct is so close to the city. There's the MCG, which holds 100,000 people and is home to the AFL Grand Final and the famous Boxing Day Test. Walk across the bridge from the G and you'll find Melbourne Park, home of the Australian Open, one of just four Grand Slam tennis tournaments. It's across the road from Amy Park, which is home to the Melbourne Storm, the Melbourne Rebels, Melbourne Victory and Melbourne City. Yep, it's a sporting precinct, but it's also an entertainment precinct and the world's biggest acts have all played here. The MCGs hosted Madonna, McCartney, Michael Jackson, The Stones, The Police, David Bowie, U2, Eminem and Guns N' Roses. While over at Amy Park, Bruce Springsteen, Taylor Swift, Elton John, Queen, Foo Fighters, Ed Sheeran and Sia have all done massive shows. And Melbourne Park has three first-class venues, Rod Laver Arena, Margaret Court Arena and John Kane Arena where everyone from Beck to The Wiggles to LCD Sound System to Robbie Williams have played. I'm Alex Leahy, here to continue our journey inside Victoria's passionate live music scene. Grinspoon's Phil Jamison remembers going to Melbourne Park in 2018 to see Talking Heads legend David Byrne. It's November 2018. I find myself in Melbourne for whatever reason. I don't know why I'm there, but I'm on my own. And I notice that David Byrne is doing American Utopia at Margaret Court Arena. And it's presented by Frontier. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to try to blag my way into this gig. And, you know, I call the various people, Sahara, etc., to go falls on deaf ears. I was like, I'm going to buy a ticket. I'm just going to buy it. I'm going to go because it's, you know, it's once in a lifetime opportunity to see David Byrne. I've never seen David Byrne before. End up buying the ticket and I'm wandering around that, you know, the, I guess the precinct that houses all that sporting arenas and stuff. And I'm lost. Like, I'll be honest, the gig's about to start. I'm wandering around, like staring up, going, where is this arena that I'm meant to be at? And I spot Paul Kelly and Sian, Paul Kelly's partner, and they're lost as well. 
And I'm like, Paul, he's like, oh, we're both going to this gig. This is cute, right? It's nice to see you. And I'm like, how are we getting to this venue? We're both kind of excited about seeing David, but we're also trying to logistically, like, where's our tour manager, basically? I was saying to Paul quite jokingly. Anyway, out of the corner of my eye, I spot it's one of those six-seater buggies, like driven by a guy in a high-vis security vest. And I, I wave him down. I'm like, yo, I got Paul Kelly here. We need to get to the gig. And so we end up hopping on the back of this buggy. I'm trying to get social media content at the time because, you know, who gets on a buggy going to David Byrne with Paul Kelly except for me. So we get driven. We get driven all past the people walking up the hill to the arena we get in there and I say, see you, Paul, you know, because I want to get there for the first song and off we go. And I end up, get my seat, you know, up wherever it is and I'm surrounded by people that have got free tickets, like BT and all the other people. I'm like, hang on, did you guys pay? And everyone's like, oh, no, we just got in. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So ended up hanging with all my friends, James Young, but all, all the industry people were there. People were taking off their shoes, smoking weed. It was an incredible show. And it was just kind of funny, the, the people you meet trying to get into a David Byrne concert in Melbourne, the musical capital of the world, you can just bump into Australia's poet, Paul Kelly, and I both trying to see David Byrne and getting lost on the way there. Phil Jamison says that David Byrne show is one of his top five gigs of all time. You're going to hear how the next song is put together right in front of your eyes. Just a short walk from Melbourne Park, or a ride on the number 70 tram, is the famous Corner Hotel. Richmond's been home to many great venues over the years, including the Old Greek Theatre, the Central Club, the Great Britain Hotel, the Kingston, the Tiger Lounge and the Richmond Club. But these days, the Corner is Richmond's big gig. For any Aussie artist, selling out your first Corner show is a major milestone. And let me tell you from experience, you never forget your first. And then there's the infamous Corner Pole. It's been called mm, a pillar of the Melbourne live scene. The first thing when you talk to someone about the corner for the first time is how many times they've been stuck behind that pole. It seems like there's a few people that it's the only place they can find to stand. Had to give them a bit of advice about better directions to go in to not stand behind the pole, but it's pretty iconic. I think that uh, getting rid of it means that the rooftop bar wouldn't exist because the roof could collapse, but, you know... <laughs> Not much you can do there. <laughs> That's Sally Mather, who worked at the corner for a decade, talking about the venue's famous pole. Yep, smack bang in the middle of the band room is a pillar that is so famous, it even has its own Facebook page. The pole at the corner hotel has nearly 2,500 followers, and the page proudly states it's been blocking your vision since 1871. Rebecca Russo wrote a love letter to the corner pole in timeout, though she admitted, Standing behind the pole is way worse than being behind a tall person. Tall people sway to the music. Tall people are often very kind and let you stand in front of them. This pole does not move for man, nor beast, nor act of God. During COVID, Many people wrote about how much they were missing the corner pole, while the pole itself posted, Hey, I miss you guys. It's getting awfully lonely in here. Bands from interstate love playing at the corner, but those poles, well, they can be a little confronting at first. Here's Kieran from Spacey Jane. 
they like to call it a enrichment or a massive fan of too. Apart from the fact that there's just two giant poles, I guess they're load bearing, they're necessary to keep the place safe. But that has always confused me. Many classic songs have started at the Corner Hotel. There was that night when Paul Kelly overheard someone remark to their friend at the bar, I've done all the dumb things. And you know that White Stripe song, Seven Nation Army? That started inside the corner, with Jack White coming up with the riff during soundcheck. The story goes that Jack asked a member of the road crew what he thought of the riff, and the roadie replied, Ah, it's just okay. Even you too popped into the corner back in 2006 to film a video for their song Window in the Skies. Some corner gigs just stick in the mind. Like the night Genesis Owusu took over the venue in April 2021. Journalist Sosafina Fulmoli was there. Genesis Owusu at the corner was probably one of the first shows I'd seen after we came out of the hard lockdown. Because I remember the corner had like opened up the doors leading into the front bar just to make it a bit more breezy uh, and COVID positive. And I'd been a fan of Genesis Owusu's for quite a while before the whole Smiling With No Teeth era. It was very anarchic. Just really, in the, you know, if they could have incited a riot, I think that they would have done that night in the best way possible. Like it was, it felt like... That show came out the most perfect of times because I feel like everyone was still really pent up. They needed an avenue to purge and just to have like a real moment of catharsis and having Genesis there to, to sort of serve that and fill that need. It couldn't have come at the most perfect of times. It was just so unique and to, to have that on a night like that, just when everyone had kind of lost themselves for a long time, especially in Melbourne, we didn't know what was what. Yeah, it was really special. The Corner hosts all kinds of acts, from pop right through to metal. One night, the wall outside the hotel might list the biggest indie group in the land, while the next night might be a legendary pop artist, as music journalist Cameron Adams explains. Everyone hates the poles but loves the bands. Seen so many bands there, but two that I want to mention because they... It sounds like if you saw these artists playing the corner, you would think that someone is having a joke or that it's been a clerical error or something. One was Guy Sebastian and who, you know, usually plays arenas or theatres or different kind of venues. And he was in this phase kind of, I don't know, it was kind of a bit of an experimental phase. I can't remember what songs. I don't think he was trying all this new stuff out and so he did a show at the corner and yeah, like a lot of it was he was going through that sort of phase where he had the little keyboard you play yourself with the little, little drum tap kind of thing and like, you you know, creating sample sounds and it was very, I'm not saying it was a trough in his career, but it was just a more experimental time and he, he maybe, yeah, he wasn't on the radio as much, whatever, but it was just fascinating seeing him at the corner with this, I don't want to say a lot of the people there maybe hadn't been in the corner before, but it wasn't the user corner kind of crowd. Like you saw people walk in going, uh, um, oh, what, where, where do I go? And But just flocking for the stage and then some people who obviously didn't navigate around the pole properly and realised, oh, there's a pole in front of me. But, yeah, that was really good and he, he seemed, you know, I guess he got launched in a strange way, like he went from nothing to everything. So he probably didn't pay his dues but playing the corner is a rite of passage so it was good to see someone like him actually at the corner and he was great, like he was really uh, engaging. 
Cameron also has fond memories of the night the Corner Hotel became the Tiny Tina Arena. Again, another act you probably think is more of a theatre or my music bowl kind of artist but she 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 basically did this show at the corner and it was it was great like she there was a place called green store tavern in king street so when she first came off young time time back in the day she was a club singer so she was doing these small venues so in a way back to her roots and that woman can sing anything obviously not telling anyone anything that they don't know but her at the corner was just yeah it was really impressive like does not give an f like does not care people yelling out for songs she's like i'm not playing that her band were great and she just busted through all the hits, did some new stuff. And I remember right at the start of the show, first song, can't remember what the song was, but all I remember is people had their phones up, so people were filming everything. And she just did the first song and was like, why have you got your fucking phones up? Put your fucking phones down. It's going to look shit. You know you're going to look back tomorrow and go, that looks shit. And she said, if you want a photo, take it now, get out of your system and put your phones in your fucking pockets. And people pretty much did. Go, Tina. That's great advice to every gig goer. Put your phones away and just enjoy the moment. Perhaps the most famous gig at the corner was when a band called the Brothers of Sodom played there on October 19, 1988. They reckon about 5,000 people rocked up and the lead singer was forced to address the crowd outside, telling them, you can't get in, but we'll leave the doors open so you can hear. The MC introduced the band explaining they were from Tasmania, and to please make them welcome to the big city. Now, you've probably never heard of the Brothers of Sodom. That's probably because it was a pseudonym for a guy who's better known as Mick Jagger. In 1988, Mick was doing a solo tour to promote his Primitive Cool album. After two shows at the Tennis Centre, he thought he'd do a secret show down the road at the Corner Hotel. It was probably the worst kept secret in town. Melbourne's biggest Stones fan, Cherry Bar owner James Young, was there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I was at the Jagger. The Brothers of Sodom was the name he gave himself as the band coming on after Charlie Musselwhite. And um, I was at that gig, at the gig at the corner for Mick Jagger solo back in the late 80s, I think it was. The way I found out was I was picking up the local street press, the impress, and it, it said in the, you know, the, the good things and the bad things, it says good thing if it's Wednesday, then you've already missed the gig. And I'm going, what the, so I ring, what the fuck is this about? You know, And then someone leaked that, you know, oh, there's a rumour that Jagger's playing at the corner. And um, I remember I, I was struggling to get in because there's so many people down there. The owner of the venue at the time got in trouble for letting a 1,000 people in when the capacity was 500 and they actually went to court and the magistrate said, it was fucking Mick Jagger from the Rolling Stones, $1,000 fine, let's not worry about it. And he got, and he, and he got away. But that, sh- that show was special. Melbourne's second biggest Stones fan, a punter named Richie, was at the show. And he remembers it like it was yesterday. Word got out pretty quickly, pre-social media, but word gets around with these kind of things. And there was probably 200 people more inside than were truly permitted. And there would have been another 800 people or so outside. That was an amazing gig. I was inside. I was crushed. I was one of many who probably almost um, (laughs) came close to needing a paramedic or some kind of medical support because it was just so hot, congested, sweaty. It was fantastic. It was that perfect kind of venue, what you want in a gig. It was an amazing, amazing, incredible gig. 
one that clearly is still with me. I can recall moments um, of it throughout, certainly the band having to stop and pull people that are being crushed against the stage. Um, so that was pretty wild. A few months before Mick Jagger popped up at the corner, another Englishman wandered into the venue one Monday night and asked if he could get up on the stage and jam. The woman behind the bar explained they already had a band booked for the night. But the guy gave her a wink and said, we're quite good. She then twigged that it was Dave Gilmore from Pink Floyd. Dave loved the corner so much, he returned for a couple more unannounced gigs that week, billed as The Fisherman. You just never know who you might catch at the corner. In 1996, Crowded House said farewell to the world in front of more than 100,000 people on the steps of the Opera House. But they chose to say their Melbourne goodbye over two nights at the corner for family, friends and fan club members. Grinspoon have had many great gigs at the corner and Phil Jamison loves dropping in when he's in Melbourne, either as a punter or as a special guest. Ah, the corner. I remember appearing, I was down in Melbourne doing a theatre run at the Comedy Theatre and I, uh, the hockey dad invited me out to sing on stage with them, which was tremendous fun. Uh, we were doing a cover of The Vines, Get Free, which is actually impossible to sing, P.S. Like, God, far out. So I was like, yeah, sure, I'll come over. And I, you know, rode a motorcycle. I had a motorcycle loaned, um, is a humble brag, um, and rode out to the corner to do this little gig with Hockey Dad, who were great friends of mine. And that night, I think Dear Seattle were on, who I managed to meet, and then also a boat show, who I ended up touring with Ali from Denise Lemonese. So, you know, like... Because the, the band room is so small, <laughs> you got to make friends at the corner. Like you, and I, because I was just a hanger on, you know, singing in Hockey Dad at the last song of the night. I was just kind of like there, being obviously considerably older than everyone else in attendance. But um, it was uh, it was a great experience, and um, the corner have always been ultimately so amazing to Grinspoon, and also. I've seen some great shows there, but Hockey Dead that night were unbelievable. I really enjoyed actually all the acts, so that was a good night. So why is The Corner such a great venue? I think the location of The Corner has a lot to do with it. Um, It's stumbling distance. Uh, Richmond is my favourite suburb of Melbourne. Yeah, I'm just a big fan of the way the room sounds as well, and I guess the people that go there are music fans. Alice Skye's first Corner experience remains etched in her mind. And the first time I played there was actually with Uncle Archie and I was thinking about that recently, being in the green room, you know, with that very recognisable carpet and yarning with Uncle about his first gig there and, you know, his memories of the green room and his memories of the crowd there. And I think that's something that's so special to me is thinking about, you know, who's been on those stages and what's happened in those rooms. And that's something else I love about live music is just you can't recreate the same gig more than once, you know. It's a one, that's just, that's just what happens. You can play the same set, but it's never going to be the same, you know. It's a you know something that happens when everybody gets in the room together and I love that. Alice remembers introducing herself to Archie Roach backstage that night. 
Gosh, I'm like, there are actually so I have so many stories about the corner when I stop and think about it. I've been really lucky to play a lot of support slots there for people with my band. We've had our dog in the green room. <laughs> I think from that same gig with Uncle Arch, I remember, because I was so nervous, I think it was my first time meeting him as well and it was pretty early on in, in my career and I remember introducing myself and saying, you know, I'm a Wagaya Wamba Wamba person from Western Victoria and Uncle Jack Charles is in the crowd and when I said that, you could just hear him kind of out the back go, way. <laughs> um, and just that support, you know, especially when you introduce yourself to a space, I think. You know, I think mob, we do that kind of wherever you go, travelling somewhere and just introducing yourself and your mob to the country that you're standing on. And that can get lost in cities because it doesn't feel like we're on country because we're surrounded by so many buildings, but, you know, we still are. And I, yeah, that memory's stuck in my, I can hear, you know, Uncle Jack Charles with his great voice <laughs> responding to that. Sally Mather started working at The Corner in 2010. Sally was the venue's music and marketing manager and saw loads of great gigs over the next decade. Oh, there was so many. Probably my most exciting moment personally was getting to meet Sharon Jones. She had a sore throat. We offered her some throat coat tea just to help her. And she's, you know, in her, she kind of looked like an American tourist with her bung bag and her visor on. We, and she's like, oh, honey, I don't need no throat coat tea. I just needed a shot of jabber and I'm ready to go. And the venue manager and I that were standing there almost collapsed because we were just even more in love with her. So that was very exciting. <laughs> Cav Tempoli from Eskimo Joe remembers their first headlining gig at the corner, which illustrates what a team effort live music is and how getting the sound right is a big part of the show. Well, the Corner Hotel uh, was one of those venues that we always wanted to play because it was, you know, one of those benchmark venues that when you got to a certain size as a uh, band, you know, you would get to play the Corner Hotel. And I don't think we really got to play it on our own headline show until we um, released our second record and the first single had come out, which was a song called From the Sea. Um, and it was doing really, really well, you know, on Triple J and all the rest of it. And we had this, we couldn't find a guy to mix us, you know, like being a band, you need a mixer. Uh, it's really important. It's how you sound consistent every night. Anyway, we got to the Corner Hotel and we had this band, I think called Miles Kane or something like that. They're an English band. Uh, they were supporting us and it was meant to be a big deal that they were going to be on the bill as well. But they brought over their English mixer. And so we, we'd done our whole sound check. It was a big deal. We were, we were playing the Corner Hotel finally as our own band. You know, we'd done some supports there, but this was our gig. And we got up to play on stage and the English, you know, the big English mixer had gone and completely reset all of the graphics and everything on the mixing desk. So... And of course, our the guy who we'd taken on tour with us clearly hadn't done his, you know, due diligence and gone up and like checked all of the EQs half an hour before you go on stage. He'd just done what he probably normally did in Perth, which is just rock up and turn it on and turn some stuff up. So we opened the set with From the Sea and we had the fallback. And then the mixer, who shall remain nameless, who never mixed us again, should I say, had this microphone and there was all these like, you know, young kids up the front, so happy to see us play. And he just gets on the microphone and he's just like, that last mixer was a beep. 
beep. And, you know, he's fucking rah, rah, rah. And just starts like, just starts yelling through the fallback wedge. And all these kids are just like, what? Uh, anyway, we got on with the show. Um, I've still got pictures in my phone actually from from that show because I for some reason we did a whole lot of pictures that night and uh, the show we we managed to pull it off we got through it but uh, my biggest memory was the sound guy swearing through the fallback wedges at everybody in the front row. The corner is also a favourite for British India's Matty O'Gorman, though there's also a downside when you're a hometown hero. But our favourite gig in Melbourne would have to be the corner, mine personally, just because it's one of those things where it's your hometown show. And it's always so stressful because you've got family coming and people want to be put on the door. You know, you're always getting a call five seconds before you're about to go on stage from your drunk dickhead mate going, the bouncers aren't going to let me in. Like, you know, can I come and help me out? You know, all of that. But the best thing about the corner is everyone goes to the front bar afterwards. Like normally when you play a gig, like uh, at another venue, they'll just kick everyone out. So all your friends are like scattered around the city. There's no central meeting point. But the corner, you play, everyone can hang upstairs, downstairs, you finish, you go out. And everyone's there. And it's always just like a party. It's almost like hanging out afterwards with everyone sometimes is, is more special than the gig. When you visit the corner, be sure to make a brief pilgrimage to see the one and only Molly Meldrum. A statue of Molly and his beloved dog Ziggy is just around the corner, from the corner. Speaking of statues, you can also say hello to Michael Godinsky when you go to a gig at Melbourne Park. MG's statue is just outside the entrance to Rod Laver Arena. Barnsley's manager, John Watson, loves a show at RLA and it always brings back some vivid memories. If you've got, you know, Jimmy Barnes and 10,000 people going off, then, you know, you're going to end up with something pretty special. You know, it also, Rod Laver Arena just always reminds me of Michael Gadinsky. It always feels, felt like you were sort of, you know, welcome to my house. So uh, anytime you're at Rod Laver, it always sort of brings back a fond memory of Michael. I love that there's the statue out front of him now. If you're planning a big night out, leave the car at home. If you can, use public transport, catch a taxi, rideshare, or organise a designated driver. Let's all get home safely and keep the band together. I think we're ready for this. We're ready for this. In this episode of Always Live, we're exploring some of Melbourne's iconic live music venues on the edge of the city. On the north side of town is the Evelyn Hotel, an institution on Brunswick Street. In the old days, and by that I mean the late 80s into the 90s, many people would go to two gigs in the one night. They'd get their wrist stamped at the Punters Club and later they'd head across the road to the Evelyn. Dave Rogers the guitarist in much-loved Melbourne band Klinger, has fond memories of One Night at the Punters. When I look back and think about the gig that I remember most and the, the biggest highlight was actually at the Punters Club. So back then, where trying to find a park around Fitzroy was like a nightmare when you were playing the Punters Club on a Friday or Saturday night. And one memorable gig, I got the park right out the front. And so... As I was playing the show, I could look to my left and see my car. So best gig, because I'm like, this is going to be the best loadout I've ever had. It was magic. Well, because the other thing about parking around Fitzroy back then was that the parking inspectors were brutal. Like if you pulled up or double parked anywhere, you'd come back five minutes later with a parking fine. And at that stage, like $150 parking fine for a young musician, it would have ruined me financially. 
I think in, in the Klinger archives, there are actually a few photos of us with great parks that we've got. <laughs> They're the moments that you really treasure. Yep. Sometimes a great gig can be all about a great car park. Cav from Eskimo Joe recalls another night at the punters, which he didn't enjoy so much. I think at that point in time, like, we had this band called Lash who were supporting us and we'd sold out the punters club, which was a big deal for us. And everyone in the band was smoking, apart from me, every, apart from me and Stu, everyone was smoking backstage and then you'd get out you know, into the venue and everyone in the front rows just fagging away. Um, and then you'd sing, you know, this like high octane set. And I remember getting back from that tour and, and just after that punters club show and having no voice because I, it had been like I'd smoked 10 packs of cigarettes. I remember getting so angry that one of my bandmates made this laminated sign with my face in it that said, Cav says no smoking. <laughs> and we had to put them up in the band rooms and uh, I felt like a bit of a goose, but hey, everyone started smoking outside. So, uh, and then a year or so later, you know, there was no more smoking in pubs. So I was, I was saved. Many things have changed in the live scene over the years. Some good, some not so good. But unfortunately, the Punters Club closed in 2002 and it's now a pizza restaurant and a nightclub. But the Evelyn is still going strong. And Mary Michalakos, the queen of the Melbourne scene, reckons it deserves to get more love. It's like a quiet achiever in the corner and it's been owned by the same family the whole time, the D'Alessandro family, Maria and John. And John, you know, John's always there. He's very hands-on. Maria's always sitting there. Now she's almost 80. I think she just turned 80. She's even got her own wine label in the bottle shop. And they never get any attention. They're not celebrated. And then they get when you try to arrange something for them, which I did recently as part of the Leaps and Bounds Festival for Fitzroyalty, they sort of shut it down because it's it doesn't seem as genuine as probably all these other things where there's a lot of people behind something like the Punters Club reunion. So I think, you know, one of those things that I would like to do is bring more attention to these underdogs. And I know people will look at the Punters Club and the Tote and think they're the underdogs, but the truth is that they get way more attention and focus compared to the other venues that have always been there in Melbourne. British India's Matty O'Gorman remembers one particular night at the EV. We supported Wolf Mother and they used all of our gear and we're like, there's a lot of hype on this band. And poor Wolf Mother, <laughs> we had some shocking gear and they had all these kind of A&R people coming to watch them. And I remember like Miles, like <laughs> shifting around the drum kit. I'm just like, God, I'm so sorry. I didn't know this was a special occasion for them. And then, you know, four months later, they put out their EP, which was the biggest thing in Australia. And then they, you know, kind of onto the world stage. So the thing about Melbourne is you feel like it's a place where, you know, you actually had a chance of making it, you know. Head towards the city from the Evelyn, turn left on Johnson Street, and you'll find a unique Melbourne venue called the Night Cat. The stage is in the middle of the room, which gives you a fantastic 360-degree view. And there are no pillars. Bands such as the Cat Empire and the Bamboos built their following at the Night Cat. And the room is a regular haunt of journalist and former Music Victoria CEO Paddy Donovan. It depends what type of show it is, really. I love the Night Cat and I love what the Night Cat's been doing since Justin took over. It used to be a sort of uh, Latin dance bar and, 
you know, there's no venue like it playing in the round. And so King Giz did a series of seven shows in a row there about five years ago, which was pretty spectacular. I've seen some all sorts of bands play there and actually just being able to move around. I always move around at a, a venue to find the best vantage point and I really like what the Nightcat's doing. They've got some exciting things happening. Walk back along Brunswick Street towards the city and you'll discover the Workers' Club right on the corner of Gertrude Street, which is a favourite of music publicist Emily Chung. Workers' Club is always a winner. Love the Workers' Club. What's good about it is that it's a small room, it's got great sound, it's got a real vibe in there. It's easy to bring the vibe. You can change the stage and set it up to have whatever vibe that suits you. And it's just a nice little, it's an easy location. Now, according to Time Out, Gertrude Street is the second coolest street in the world. Every year, the publication ranks the world's best streets based on food, fun, culture and community. In 2022, coming in at number one was Wellington Street in Montreal. Now, that's a pretty nice location, but it doesn't have a live venue as cool as The Workers, which has bands pretty much every night of the week and one of the best palmers in town. And we have to point out that The Living End's Chris Cheney has never written a song about Montreal, but he did write a song about The Workers. On his debut solo album, Chris sings about hearing two people talking at the Workers' Club. I'm just trying to think now whether I've actually played a gig at the Workers' Club <laughs> or whether I've just drunk there. I've done a couple of little guest spots, I think, for people. Um, I think I might have got up and played at someone's birthday party that they were having at the Workers' Club one night. But um, the thing about that place, what, how it ended up in the song was that when I first started recording this solo album, it was at a studio in Collingwood called Red Door. And we were staying just somewhere off Gertrude Street there. So we'd walk every night when we'd finish the session, we'd walk past the workers' club to our hotel. Except we wouldn't walk past, of course, we'd walk in. So that became the sort of nightly watering drinking hole. And then, I don't know, it's a funny thing when you write songs, sometimes, you know, just places and, and whatever just kind of pop themselves into the song and it just kind of rolled off, you know. I heard two people talking at the workers' club last night. It just seemed to it seemed to flow, you know, and it, it's made up that bit. You know, I didn't – I mean, of course, there was always a lot of people in there. It's a pretty pumping kind of venue. But, uh, yeah, it's, I, I really wanted, you know, this, this album to kind of – as it was recorded, you know, all around the world sort of. I thought it was nice to have a, a Melbourne pub reference in there. The workers' club is a cosy band room with a cap of just 260. But some superstars have played here, including Lord, Tones and I, Vance Joy, Barnsey, Gang of Youths, Casey Chambers, and Slash from Guns N' Roses. On the south side of the city is a venue that once had more than 200,000 people in the crowd, the biggest concert audience ever in the Southern Hemisphere. The Seekers hold the record at the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl an open-air venue that was inspired by the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles. The bowl opened up in 1959. The Seekers show was in 1967. And the venue has hosted ABBA, Paul McCartney, Bob Dylan, Bon Jovi, Neil Diamond, Neil Young, Metallica, Pearl Jam and many others. And when Peter Garrett and Midnight Oil put the band back together, they played the bowl in 2017. So Safina Formoli was there and it blew her mind. It was crazy. It was crazy. I've got a photo of Peter Garrett lighting a flare in the pole and I was just like, is this an OHS thing? He's running around the stage 
with this flair. And that was the first time I'd ever seen Midnight Oil, one of the first times that I've ever been at the bowl. And I, that that changed a lot of things for me to see a band of musicians at that point in their career. It was almost like they'd rediscovered themselves and they came out revitalised. I mean, this was when they were first getting back on the road after, what, 10 or so years of not doing anything. The sound was produced magnificently. And I remember as we were, because we left not long before the end, we're walking back up the hill and it was like the sound was getting better the further away we were going, which is weird because it's sometimes like it gets more muddled and worse. But I think the way that the amphitheatre is built and orchestrated, just the sound just travelled up so beautifully and it was a really still night. And I remember walking up and we could hear the brass section way clearer up on top of the hill than we could actually in the bowl. So we were like, oh, man. No, we can't go back and have a look at it. We can't go back and have a look at it. But it was that that was probably one of the best shows that I've been to since I've been living here. And since then there's been like too many to count. But yeah, in terms of shows that kind of stick in the back of my mind and kind of have that impact on like, okay, like we're really lucky we got to work not necessarily with these musicians, but even in the same kind of breath as mm-hmm. them. It's very privileged. Midnight Oil's manager, John Watson, loves the bowl. I think different venues suit different artists. Um, you know, I've had great memories at the Maya Music Bowl if you get a good night for it and you're lucky enough to be, or if it's a bad night, you're lucky enough to be undercover. So, but I do love the Maya Music Bowl. I think it's got a really sort of unique proximity to the city, but a natural thing. It always sounds really good. The Oils have done some famous gigs at the bowl, including the Stop the Drop show in 1983 campaigning for nuclear disarmament. And that show that Sosefina talked about was memorable for many reasons. The promoter, Michael Gadinsky, was in a very excited state backstage. Michael Gadinsky had been bounding around backstage holding the Melbourne Cup, which he'd won the day before and he hadn't been to bed since. That was pretty great, until it wasn't. So what went wrong? Well, during the last song for the night, Oil's guitarist and keyboards player Jim Magini slipped and tore his hamstring off the bone. Ouch! For a while there it looked like that we'd need to sort of fall at the very last hurdle of this massive world tour. They'd done, you know, 73 out of 75 shows and it looked like that was going to be it. Jim ended that night in hospital, but the tour went on. He did the last couple of shows in a wheelchair. Many strange things have happened on the bowl stage including that night when some local music luminaries like Paddy Donovan, who was then the music writer at The Age newspaper, ended up on stage with Neil Young. And I got one of those phone calls, which was asking me to be an actor on stage during the Neil Young Greendale show. And so Warwick from Greville Records and myself and Dan Warner were sworn to secrecy, but we were asked to dress up as angry farmers and get up during Greendale with pitchforks and be actors on stage at the My Music Bowl and then come back on for the last song uh, where it was just this big dancing celebration. So we were all, you know, everyone I knew had tickets to the show. We were having beers beforehand. It just had to keep it all very quiet. And then I had to sort of disappear at a certain time. And then we sort of dressed up in these outfits and got on stage. And, and there we were standing next to Neil with these pitchforks acting as angry farmers and all my friends sort of in the fourth row just sort of jaws agape um, and then quickly got to meet him at the end of the show. So 
So that was the weirdest thing when um, you transform and you're suddenly actually on stage and part of the show. But um, that's something I'll, I'll never forget. As Neil Young put it beautifully and simply, live music is better. Rockwiz and radio host and Neil fan Brian Nankervis has been going to gigs since the early 70s and he still loves Melbourne's live scene. I think we've just got great rooms. The Palais is a fantastic room. Our pubs, the Corner Hotel is wonderful. To see a band or to see an act at the Maya Music Bowl is a really special experience with the backdrop, the MCG, you're in the gardens. So I think even Festival Hall, I was played tennis last night with an old mate who I haven't seen for 25 years. He's been living in London. And he said, every time I come back to Melbourne, I'm reminded of the incredible live venues that are in this town and that were a big part of my growing up. Yep. Our venues remind us of so many good times. We mentioned David Byrne in this episode, and he had this to say about live music. It gets people out of their houses and it gets them hanging together. And that's a beautiful thing. And many venues will outlast us all, like the pole at the corner. As one person commented on Facebook, You were there before me. You will be there after me. I love you forever. One, two, three, four. Coming up on Always Live, we head Southside and visit a venue that was once military HQ for an American general. Like it was actually a base for General MacArthur in the World War II. <laughs> and we'll remember that time when Whispering Jack turned up for a gig at the ESPY. That's next time on Always Live. This episode of Always Live was written and researched by Mikey Carl, Jeff Jenkins and Luke Wallace. Audio production by Ben Oakley. Produced by Dave Carter on behalf of Media Heads. If you dug this podcast, feel free to share it, write a review and subscribe to the series on your favourite podcast app. Sharing is caring. And if you want info on some awesome live gigs coming soon to Victorian stages, follow Always Live on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or visit the website alwayslive.com.au. I'm Alex Leahy. Catch you at the next gig. Hey guys, it's Matilda Pearl. I couldn't do what I do without my band by my side, so don't do life without your mates by yours. Take care on the roads this summer, look out for each other, and most importantly, let's keep the band together.